Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest on An Apple A Week podcast, Professor Anton van den Hengel, who is the Director of the Centre for Augmented Reasoning at the Australian Institute for Machine Learning. And if, like me, you go, oh, here is someone who knows a lot about that really exciting new app, ChatGPT, then you are absolutely right. And so it's fantastic to have uh, Anton with me uh, today. Uh, as the founding director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, he has really done a lot of research um, into a very interesting area of computer science and is at the University of Adelaide. He's had, you know, fantastic funding um, in external research funding and also been working with um, a lot of the big boys in the area, Google, Canon, Facebook, um, and, and a whole lot of other commercial entities. So he's really working at the the edge of um, academia and commerce, and that's incredibly important for our innovative science and technology space here in Australia. So a highly published, highly awarded scientist with me this week. Welcome, Anton. Thank you very much, Katie. That's very generous. Uh, we met um, recently at the Australian Davos Convention, our conference, and uh, where we're talking about the future of um, Australia and some of the problems that arise. And I, I was fascinated by some of the discussions that we have had uh, since that time. And really, it's such um, an important area, artificial intelligence, um, you know, machine learning, uh, the future of AI. And The Economist recently said that large creative AI models will transform lives and labour markets, uh, and particularly um, with open AI coming on the market in November, not on the market, just open source in 2022, um, with ChatGPT, a chatbot that really um, uh, embodies more knowledge than any human has ever known. Um, and we can see it really transforming the way of work um, as we speak. I think it was the, the most rapidly um, um, uh, uploaded um, app in, in the history um, of humankind. Um, and recently, some of the information coming out of Google that leaked documents saying Google says we have no moat and neither does OpenAI. And recently, Elon Musk and a whole lot of other computer scientists saying, look, maybe we should put a pause on this for six months. I'm going to start with a simple question. Friend or foe, what do you think about ChatGPT and other large language models? And on the balance, do you think this is a good thing for humanity or something that we need to have concerns about seriously? Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly um, getting a lot of press and it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for being in a research area that's suddenly become so fashionable. Um, the... Uh, the truth is that it's neither friend nor foe. You know, it doesn't have a position. The large language models are wonderful in what they do, but really what they do is replay the human input they've been given. 
And the, uh, the challenge for us is what we use them for. The, the danger isn't in the technology. It's an entirely virtual technology. It doesn't have an intellect. It doesn't have an agenda. And it has no sentience, no theory of mind. It doesn't have emotions or any of these things that people have been projecting onto it. Uh, it is just a tool. It's a, you know, it's as as sentient as your calculator, your phone, or your sand shoes. Uh, I'm afraid the the challenge is or not or not yes, afraid. <laughs> Uh, the challenge is only that it's uh, an amazingly powerful new tool. And every powerful new tool offers uh, opportunities and challenges. And some of the challenges that ChatGPT offers are, uh, are quite different to challenges that we've faced in the past. But it's not out there doing it by itself, right? It's not out there scheming and plotting to overthrow us or to scam us into anything or, or any of the other um, the risks that people have, uh, have opined. And it's not sentient. So it's not going to take over. The, the singularity isn't upon us. Uh, but it is going to have a, a big impact on the economy. It will have a, a big impact on the global economy. And in, in much the same way as every one of these technological revolutions has a substantial impact on on the way that the economy runs it's not going to uh, add or create or um, delete jobs uh, in total right it will change jobs and jobs may move from one place to the other you know some job classes will be eliminated and other job classes will be created there's already uh, hundreds of job advertisements in Australia, let alone overseas, for prompt engineers, which is what they call people who operate these, these large models. The, the challenge for Australia specifically is that we are not, uh, we're not part of this, uh, this technological development, really. Most of it is happening in, uh, in California, uh, and, but in the US in general, and then a fair bit in China and you know some related places, Canada's doing extremely well. Australia is not doing so well. And uh, you can see that in, uh, in all sorts of statistics. The easiest one, I think, to get your head around is that we're ninth in the world in terms of GDP per capita. And I think we're 91 in the world in terms of uh, economic complexity, which I think puts us just above Uganda or, you know, and below Kazakhstan. Sorry, don't get, don't quote me on those, um, on those countries. You get, but, you get your point. Yes. I mean, yeah. basically a big mine sending stuff overseas would be fair to say. I think we've all been worried Indeed. that we haven't been able to move to services or knowledge economy in the same way other countries have. Absolutely. And this technology will uh, enable that process to develop further so the, the uh, again with all of these breakthroughs people overestimate the short-term impact and underestimate the long-term impact we are currently frankly sitting here you know we're the frog in that boiling pot of water 
we allowed Google and Facebook to come and take over the way that we share information. And uh, Uber came in and changed the way that we uh, that we do local transport. Uber is really significant. You know, we've just watched while well, this has happened. Right? We all use those services. We vote with our feet. But these are that's a fundamental change. Uber, as much as Google is, and Facebook, uh, took apart the news industry. Really, took apart journalism as a result. Uber took apart the taxi industry, really on the basis of AI, because uh, Uber's core IP is about um, aligning customers and uh, drivers. But by doing that just slightly better than the taxi industry, they took apart an industry that was very highly regulated, very uh, well protected by legislation. It involves Australian drivers on Australian roads with Australian cars and Australian passengers and Australian road rules and Australian workplace rules. And nonetheless, they took part an industry that, uh, you know, that now is far, far less profitable than it used to be. Uh, that model is happening in farming right now. So people, people feel somehow that Australia will be prote protected by its geography. But one of the things that AI does is create global markets. So there are farmers in Australia now who are working for uh, multinationals who run algorithms in other places that tell them what to do every morning. So the contract between that farmer and their employer, their multinational, is to get in the tractor and drive out to the top paddock and put 14 tons of superphosphate on it because that's what the algorithm says should be done. So they've become uber tractor drivers. Uh, the algorithm doesn't care about the environmental impact of pumping you know, nitrogen into the watercourses. It doesn't care about erosion, doesn't care about the quality, amount of carbon in the soil to hand on to the next generation. It actually doesn't even necessarily care about how many you know, peas, you know, ears of corn or whatever get grown because the algorithm could well and truly be deciding to hedge for other crops, you know, for other farms. So you know, your farm could be used to, uh, to hedge for the case where there's a, a weather event somewhere else. And thus, you know, you're only really expected to grow peas if the if a particular weather event happens. That's the change right now. Uh, it's so, not, so really, you know, what you're talking about in in some ways is you know, industrial revolution was the sort of transformation of manual work. Um, this industrial revolution is the transformation of mental work. So that the class of workers or type of workers and what will be needed is going to change. And, of course, that does cause friction in an economy, especially if it's not changing fast enough. But what you're talking about is we're now much more globally connected. Australia has actually benefited from, you know, we're early uptake users of um, that sort of online technology. And, in fact, in medical research where I come from, medtech is actually something we're really good at, digital health products, and telehealth was something we actually led with. But interestingly, you brought up something that I hadn't really thought about, and that is that we're hearing a lot of negativity from pe people like Google um, who are the disruptors 
that they're going to be disrupted. And I hadn't actually thought about the fact that their model is now exposed because, you know, the internet's brought democratisation of knowledge. But what this is doing, because it's open source, particularly open AI, um, is that you can build your own chat GPT. And in fact, Google, you know, raised concerns recently that LLMs are on a phone, that, you, that um, there's scalable personal AI you know, they've, they've solved the scaling problem that um, they're nervous about responsible release, that entire website's full of art models with no restrictions, um, that they're worried about, you know, this sort of multimodality. So it sounds to me actually like the disruptors are feeling the threat of disruption. And in fact, we might be empowering the individual. So for an Australian sort of scientific community, um, you know, we've some seed funding and some smarts being applied to this, we could get on board this, you know, industrial revolution ourselves. We don't have to be held back by um, being, you know, a follower in this. We can participate in finding our space uh, in the innovation global, um, you know, exposure going forward. If you were to sort of think about that from an from a artificial intelligence science point of view, um, where do you think Australia sits? Because if I was to comment about medical research, for instance, I always say we're very good at translation medicine. We, we've not been good at discovering, you know, druggable targets because that costs huge amounts of money. We're a bit sort of resource restricted. Um, you know, we've got a socialised, privatised healthcare system. So we're really good at translating, you know, healthcare into helping patients. Um, and that's where we tend to do better. So whereabouts in science and, and artificial intelligence, um, you know, and, and the academic endeavours, would you think would be where we should be, you know, really funding and investing going forward to say, let's take advantage of what we're good at, whether it's resilience and resourcefulness in a financially constrained scientific environment? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Australia punches above its weight in AI research. We're in the top 10 in the world on most of the measures and there's some very good groups around Australia, but it's run as a cottage industry. So it's in universities, it's uh, badly funded. Uh, there is almost no funding in Australia uh, at a federal level for this type of research. And, and recent federal budget. Yeah, well, and the latest federal budget, I'm afraid, uh, had no real additional funding in this area either. But just to point out, are you probably one of the centres that has had federal funding? Yeah, indeed. So the this the, one of the so the centre that I run really, as far as I'm concerned, has the only federal research funding for 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 real AI uh, theoretical research in Australia. There are little bits and pieces around the place. And CSI, don't get me wrong, CSIRO have uh, got some funding it's actually a surprisingly small amount of funding to work in this area and but their focus is very much on uh, applied translation you know they're um, they're not you know their goal is to help uh, SMEs really to to make the transition to a modern economy not to create unicorns but this technology is critical for Australian science. It, the, it's very hard to find a research grant these days that doesn't have AI in it. And that reflects the importance of this technology. It's the next statistics. You, know, you, you can't do research without statistics. And you know, now you can't do research without AI. And AI enables entirely new science to be done. We're predicting... Uh, who will get diabetes out of purely um, self-reported data 10 years before they get diabetes at about 
75, I think, percent accuracy. Uh, so yeah, it's it's certainly a good time to to um, for Australia to double down in this technology. Um, you asked about the moat. Uh, it, it's you know Google or you know Alphabet is uh, a multi-trillion-dollar uh, economy, right? The the Google economy is bigger than the economy of most nations on Earth. So to say they don't have a moat, I think, might be a little bit cute. <laughs> but they uh, and but the moat isn't uh, just in the fact that you know we've all been giving them our search data for all these years. It's in their capability. Right? So they have uh, most you know some of the world's best people in in many countries all working dynamically towards constantly improving their um, set of offerings, their um, and their capabilities. Uh, it's a very good time for startups in in AI. One of the things that these large language models, uh, one of the impacts of these large language models is that you don't need as much data as you used to in order to be able to uh, start a business, a machine learning based business, because you can use the large language model and then just fine tune it on a small amount of data. And that turns out to be much more effective in many cases than, than trying to sequester your own massive data set and then train on that. Uh, that's a fantastic opportunity for startups in this space, but it does take real skills, right? To be able to do that, you need to be you know, very proficient in this area and you'll be competing against other people who are very proficient in this area. So it's one of those, uh, those areas where differential skills uh, what makes the difference? You know, uh, you know, everybody just buys the same hammer. You know, every hammer, like a four-dollar hammer, is roughly as effective as a forty-dollar hammer. The difference in AI is that the really people with the top-level skills will cr construct something that's ten percent more effective than than a hacker. And that 10% will then get them 20% more of the business, which will get them more data, which will enable them to be 30% better. And before you know it, you've got Google. I mean, that's what Google did to web search, right? They well, well that, their actual quote is Google models slight and that they have a slight edge in terms of quality, but the gap is closing astonishingly quickly. So they've recognised that is their model and that, you know, competitive commercial advantage is slipping very rapidly. So people who can get organised, get on board um, and get there quickly. So it sounds to me like early and quick and flexible, you know, fail fast kind yeah. of model are really going to work in this environment. So the excitement around it is obviously palpable um, and we've got great, you know, scientists in Australia um, directing them and providing the seed funding so they can get in early and quickly and fail fast or move up to being a very competitive and, and, and you know, global companies where we want them to be. So, so you know, it, it is interesting, though, because at the end of the day, um, there, there is also other constraints with regards to um, OpenAI or ChatGPT. And Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO, said there's an inflection point that's already arrived when it comes to um, these giant models being made. And he thinks that instead of getting bigger, they're going to be better in other ways, which I think is kind of interesting. I know 
as a scientist, we, we use machine learning um, on training on epigenetics and genetics. You take 10% of your, 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 your small amount of data and train it onto the 90%, and, and that's incredibly effective. And um, we certainly understand that, you know, we need kids to take maths and science at school. I had a, a great constituent who decided she wanted to do coding for um, children, and she, she basically I helped her to set up an online um, coding for ABC for coding for eight to 12 year olds uh, in Higgins, where I was the member and uh, through the COVID lockdown. And we had six weeks of free Zoom coding lessons for these kids run by Grace Halifax, an eight year old. And um, she, we actually had 250 kids sign up. So there's a real interest by kids. They get coding is the future. And obviously, AIs are probably going to disrupt that even further. But being able to understand these things, I think, is going to be incredibly important. So encouraging kids into the STEM disciplines will be important. But we do have great scientists, don't we? So we, we, we also need to encourage them not just to be great scientists, but to be great entrepreneurs as well and to provide that incentive for innovation and, and to become entrepreneurs. Yeah, Australia has a lot of pieces of the puzzle. We just we're missing a few of the dots in between. And if we could join those dots then I think that we really could make the transition to a modern economy and, you know, a bit more diversity and a bit less reliance on digging stuff up and shipping it, uh, you know, shipping dirt overseas. Uh, fantastic. Uh, the um, coding, as far as I'm concerned, everybody should code. And the more people that are out there coding, the better. The reason, you know, there's an argument going around that chat GPT means that we don't need coders anymore which is you know frankly uh, ridiculous yeah because the the reason to learn to code isn't because you're going to spend your life being a gun coder the reason to learn to code is because you get a deep understanding of what the machine can and can't do and how you transform your problem into a problem that that it can solve the you know and the opportunity for australia in the machine learning expertise that we have here is exactly that. It's to figure out how to turn the challenges that we've got, the opportunities we've got into things that can be solved by this technology to generate a, a global business opportunity. Right? We really have to focus on, on global opportunities rather than just on trying to be slightly more uh, efficient than the fish and chip shop around the corner. Right? Where um, this, is, this is our time in the sun, right? And you and I have discussed before how Israel has been very effective at, at building global businesses and being ambitious to be global, not just being local. Um, and do you, what do you think are the critical sort of factors that with Israel that we can learn from in our economy? Yeah, Israel, I think, is very interesting. When you talk to the Israelis, they will tell you how their every disadvantage has been an advantage. Right? Nobody there has a business model that is about Israel, that every, you know, everyone's got a startup idea. My bus driver had a startup he was trying to pitch, but <laughs> they're all focused globally. They're all focused at a global market because there is no internal market. Uh, whereas, you know, in Australia, we convince ourselves that despite being the ninth richest country on earth, that we can't afford to innovate that we can't afford to invest in science or education and somehow that our every advantage is a disadvantage. I think, you know, we're in great danger of talking ourselves out of the next generation's prosperity. Mm. 
Well, you know, we always hold up CSL as being this fantastic company that's gone global and people come, oh, it's so big and how can we ever get there? But there's some great little companies, not so little anymore, but, um, you know, in Higgins there's Alcidian, which is, you know, a med tech company that's gone global. Um, you know, massive you know, work done by Kate Quirk, who's been an, a, a total superstar. And we've really got a champion these sort of science and med research um, endeavours that actually go into that global level. Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Our time has gone so quickly and I'm sure we could chat for many more hours. But um, as I've told you, I love to ask people, my last question is, you know, going forward, what would you hope for the future in the next 100 years, Anton? I, I really hope that Australia can make the transition to, uh, to capture the benefit of the technological revolution that we're undergoing right now i think this this really is a fantastic time and yeah maybe instead of focusing on the fear we could focus on the opportunity and and help australia transition to the next phase of, uh, of the global economy that's fantastic and i and i love to hear that you know that uh the sector's probably digging itself up that it's reached that sentinel being moment, that that's still a long way off. We don't need to panic. We just need to be aware and ethically responsible. But there's so much more opportunity to gain from this, and Australia in particular is well positioned. So it's been fantastic speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time, Anton. No, thank you, Katie. It's fantastic. Join me, Dr Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do. Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least? The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce this, this week's podcast guest, Maria Said, who is the CEO of Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia. And uh, I often have to do a little bit of preparation for my podcast, but this time I really had to do very little preparation because I uh, regard uh, Maria as a colleague, friend, and collaborator of probably around 20 years and um, have watched her journey in a very important space in the sector. She is the head of um, a group called Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation uh, that has been working for 30 years um, in the area of supporting families um, and children and adults with food allergy and anaphylaxis. And she has been a giant in the field of um, consumer advocacy and patient advocacy for this very important area. And so much has happened over the last 30 years. I'm, I'm thrilled to invite you and welcome you to our um, podcast this week. Welcome, Maria. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, it's, um, I mean, I know you have a nursing background and I know you have a very personal experience of food allergy and anaphylaxis with your um, son who had food allergy and anaphylaxis. But let's go back to the beginning of why you were, uh, helped to found this very important organisation in the early 90s. What was it like um, for patients and families 
uh, and, and whether they were being represented and how did you get involved and why? Yeah, look, I actually joined the organisation uh, soon after it was launched. So I didn't, uh, I'm not the founder, um, but I joined as, I think, member number 17. Um, I joined the organisation uh, because I felt so alone at the time with my child with food allergy. Um, it took me three years to convince doctors that there was something wrong and all, the only advice I got was just don't give him peanut butter. You'll be fine. Just don't give him peanut butter. And then it wasn't uh, until he was going to preschool and he, my son was hospitalised for his asthma. And I said to the paediatrician, uh, what do you think? Uh, uh, what, what, how, do, how am I going to manage this? Like he's three and he's going to preschool and I'm really frightened. This is after he, he was in hospital and they had offered him a peanut butter sandwich in hospital, despite me saying that he was peanut allergic. And um, my paediatrician, who was a colleague of mine, because I had worked in paediatrics, kind of rolled his eyes at me and he said, oh, Maria, just take him to your GP and tell your GP to give him some peanut butter. So with that, I went to my GP and I had spoken to the GP numerous times because he'd had numerous reactions. And I said, look, this is what the paediatrician said, and he said, oh, I read something about this about a month ago. I think maybe we should refer you to an allergy specialist. And that was when he was three. So he was referred. And then I was told, uh, I, people said to me, how have you managed to keep him alive for this long? Which was really frightening. He was prescribed um, an adrenaline injector, an EpiPen at the time. And I came home and even my family were a little bit more understanding because even at the age of two, when he wasn't properly, still not properly diagnosed, my mother let him shell whole peanuts and feed them to her. And I said, what, you know, like I wouldn't let anyone give him any food. I always packed his food when we were going out. If I left him anywhere, I made sure that he only ate the food that I had packed for him. And she let him shell whole peanuts and, you know, she said, oh, he's just feeding them to his nana, you know, like, don't stress, you know, you're too fussed about this kid. Um, and with that, he didn't go into anaphylaxis, but he started sneezing, he started rubbing his eyes, he got hives all over him, his eyes were swelling, and my mother was running around, you know, praying, calling to Madonna because she couldn't believe what was happening in front of her. And it was only then that she believed that this was as serious as it was. And I mean, it wasn't an anaphylaxis, but it was still an allergic reaction that was you know, significant enough for her. So as a health professional, an articulate person who is an extrovert, I had the trouble that I had trying to get the right care for my child how must it be for other people? So that was my driver. That's amazing. And, and as a paediatric allergist myself, I have to say I've heard that story so many times where people say, oh, grandma just thinks we'll, we'll get them cured by just giving it to them. Or um, actually it's not real, is it? And um, I know myself when I used to give lectures um, in other hospitals, people would sort of sidle up to me and say, this food allergy thing, it's, it's, it's all made up, isn't it? 
So there was, a, in the 90s and, and early 2000s, there's this sort of great scepticism, wasn't there, about whether it actually really even existed. And, and awful to think that so many people kind of had to experience the reactions in someone they knew and loved before they believed it um, because it wasn't something that happened, um, you know, generations ago. It's one of those new kids on the block from the point of view of That's new right. That's right. And I remember, you know, hospitalisation on Easter Saturday when he was three and a half. So this is after he was diagnosed. And I worked in emergency as an RN and I didn't recognise that he was having an anaphylaxis. I took him to my GP. He had hives all over him and his asthma had kicked in. And I took him to my GP and my GP, you know, said, oh, he's, um, you know, got a virus just you know, he told me what to do with his um, asthma reliever medication and so forth. And I took him home and he wanted to go to the, my son wanted to go to the toilet. And I saw he had the worst angioedema, genital angioedema that I had ever seen. A swelling of the skin and, and subcutaneous tissue, so the, the, the layers underneath. So angioedema can look like a Michelin man sort of thing. That's right. It was horrible. And I took him straight to hospital, still with the adrenaline, didn't give it to him, took him to hospital. And then I was questioned for three and a half hours about sexual abuse. Oh, my gosh. And it wasn't until after three hours that I pulled, I was in shock. Uh, I pulled myself together and someone said to me, you seem to know a lot of staff here. Would you prefer we moved you to a different hospital? And with that, I became very irate and asked them to call the paediatrician and told them I wasn't speaking to anybody else until I spoke to a paediatrician. And it was then that the paediatrician said, this child is having anaphylaxis. Gosh, I know that, that, that's a sort of so much confusion and consumer concern and different stories. Um, as you know, I have a peanut allergy myself, adult onset, and um, I kind of almost joke, but it's not a joke. I've had professors of paediatric allergy who know I've had a peanut allergy hand me a plate of Florentines, which have got peanuts all over them. Um, I've had mothers-in-law, my stepmother-in-law consist, insist I didn't have a peanut allergy, I had a shrimp allergy, <laughs> having an oh. argument about that um so you know there's so much misconception and, and confusion so um and i know that um anaflex australia um allergy and anaflex australia very supportive of, of, of a new product um called allergy pal which is an online device which um, means that the individualized anaphylaxis plan is on someone's phone and then that can be sent uh, to a family or a carer or you know a, a, another child's friend mother and so that um, the individualised plan and how and when to act when someone's right. reaction is right on the one. And I have to say I'm, I am a little conflicted because Mimi Tang and I were the founders of Allergy Power, but um, since I've left the world of allergy, I'm thrilled to see that that product is um, getting out there and that um, it's being really supported um, here and in America, I think, from my understanding. And you've yes. been very involved in that, haven't you, Maria? And we, yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to the um, releasing the next iteration and... Um, it's, I think, the emergency aspect, you know, a lot of people panic and don't think that they are, they don't believe that they're seeing what they're seeing when someone, uh, a child or even an adult has an allergic reaction. Uh, they wonder whether they're making a big thing of it or whether it's really happening. And we tell people to follow the Ask Your Action Plan with Allergy Pal, if you you know, tick that someone is wheezing, then it tells you to administer the adrenaline. 
Yeah, which is so fantastic because I know as an allergist, there's two aspects to an auto injector, an adrenaline auto injector, and that is firstly how to use it. There's always training about that, but it's yes. on, online now, so the allergy power can take you through those steps, but when to use it. And often people just don't know that step. And I'm thrilled that National Allergy Week is, is this week, the 21st of May, and that, um, that uh, it is about, you know, make sure you use your adrenaline cream first rather than asthma um, reliever if you've got both asthma and um, um, a history of anaphylaxis or food allergy and you've just eaten. So is that the, is that the message this year for the National Allergy Week? Yeah, so for Food Allergy Week, the our message is very much around uh, people that are diagnosed with both food allergy and asthma. Um, when someone develops sudden breathing difficulty, people need to uh, administer, especially if they've eaten within the last few hours, um, they need to administer their adrenaline first and then have their asthma reliever puffer too many people delay the administration of adrenaline and that is something that sadly we see too often um, and there are people that don't make it so you know it's a very important message to get out into the community don't hesitate if in doubt give the adrenaline it's safer to use it and not need it than to give it too late mm. well adrenaline is just you know in our bodies we have natural form of adrenaline and I, I remember an allergist in um, in the Netherlands um, used to say that uh, he would get people to administer a live adrenaline pen in his office if it was just at the expiry date. <laughs> I thought yes. that was a bit punitive but uh, he said they never forgot how to use it after that and they never frightened to use it because at the end of the day it, you know if it's needed it's needed and we know so many people who inject them into their hands or don't know how to inject them but it seems that people now know how to inject them. That seems to be getting through, but they're still cautious about when to inject them. So anything involving breathing problems, you know, treat early, get in early, give the adrenaline if you're having problems with breathing. Because as you say, so many coronal inquests we, we see each year, you know, it's it, reading them and they're publicly available documents. They, they make the hair stand on, up on the back of your neck about someone having breathing difficulties, thinking it's mild, getting up, walking. Yes. You know, not, Bushing, bringing the adrenaline pen to the person, um, uh, you know, ignoring the signs, and then it's too late. The the lungs and the, you know the cardiovascular system shuts down, and then far too late to actually administer it. Yeah, it's uh, uh, the 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 number of people that we hear about. Sure, fatalities are rare, but in my opinion, each and every one of them that I know about, I've known about over the last 30 years could have been prevented. Um, the, often there are just so many things that, that don't fall into place that contribute to their loss of life. And, um, you know, you mentioned posture, getting up and walking around, um, a delay in the administration of adrenaline, um, the adult that's meant to be uh, supervising, you know, if it's a child on camp or a child at school, um, hesitates because, you know, they think someone else knows more about this. So they, you know, I've heard of children being sat in a car and driven to another spot on a campsite to uh, find someone else who can administer the adrenaline. Um, there are just too many gaps in care and um, many have criticised Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia because we have encouraged 
Um, and sometimes even pushed for coronial inquests to happen once families contact us. But it is, I feel that it is because of these coronial inquests, which aren't about attributing blame, because the, the family that has lost the loved one are crushed, but so is the school, so is the childcare, so is the restaurant. Um, you know, it, it's about looking at what went wrong every step of the way and then trying to learn from that, uh, create resources, um, tweak for the health professionals, for ASCIA, the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, to tweak the ASCIA action plan. Um, I remember I had to write up my own son's uh, emergency response plan when he went to school we didn't have one you know there was no there were no guidelines there was nothing um, and I wrote it up being a nurse and I took it to my GP and I said how does this look and he said oh yeah yeah it looks pretty good and I had put on it that I was scared that people would give him his adrenaline but then just stand there and watch and I remember putting on the action plan that if uh, he stops breathing to start CPR. And I remember pushing for that when ASCIA first um, created their ASCIA action plan. And they, you know, it was, no, we don't need that. You know, people will give the adrenaline. and But then sadly, it wasn't until the death of a, a boy in Sydney in 2011, where staff gave the adrenaline and they just stood there and watched him go from blue to purple. Um, and then sadly, it was his father that arrived and started CPR. Wow. Um, and that's, you know, the, the change of yeah. CPR on the ASCII action plan. Yeah. And you're right, it doesn't just affect the family, it affects the whole community because it's shocking to think something as innocuous as a food can kill somebody. And when you read these coronial inquests, it's, it is so shocking. And I know I read a coronial inquest, I was chair of a, a, a local girls' school and um, yes. and I read to the council a coronial inquest of a, of a child who'd been at a camp locally and just said, this is what happens um, if we're not paying attention to the risk and due diligence that is required. So it's wonderful that... Um, you know, that now there's a National Allergy Council and the National Allergy Centre of Excellence, and, I, and I'm proud of you and I advocating together um, yes. over a long period of time for the National Allergy Strategy, uh, which was initiated with you and Richard Lowe and many of us involved as well. And then um, when I was in Parliament, being able to advocate for a national inquiry, a federal national inquiry, and be um, thank you for you and so many, you know, hundreds of people and their contribution to the report, which is called... Um, uh, walking the allergy tightrope that's right that title was my suggestion um, yep. and, um and that there was 26 million or has been 26 million dollars now being um, pumped into the sector to really increase um you know the, the the ability for the sector to deliver education consumer awareness improve services and, and as um some academics from overseas have said australia does not take a back seat when it comes to investment into this area, um, particularly understanding that food allergies are important because, as we all know, unfortunately, Australia is leading the ladder board with regards to um, prevalence of food allergy. So congratulations for all the work that you have done, um, putting the voice of the consumer and the patient right at the heart of this federal response. It's, it's you know, wonderful, you know, pivoting moment really for the sector to, to move forward. So what would be the most exciting thing for you 
in, in the next chapter of the National Allergy Council that's now been established. Look, I'm looking forward to there being uh, more of a shared care approach to allergic disease. I think that um, we have too many sitting on waiting lists that uh, really need to access care and support uh, in the early stages. It's it's important that people that have held their limp, lifeless child in their arms, uh, that, that they don't wait on a, a, a waiting list for two months and then they have, you know, very little time to talk about that experience. Um, supporting these people from the get-go, uh, making sure our GPs, our, um, you know, allied health that everyone's on the same page. We need dietitians to be better trained. We need nurses to be better trained. We, uh, you know, I see food allergy as being a community concern. Everyone's got a role to play, um, whether it's, you know, the local local pub or uh, whether it's a grandma or whether it's uh, a parent that's inviting children for a, a children's party uh, it's important that people with food allergy are included. And and if we're supported, I think that people are going to be real about their expectations. I think some people expect far too much. Um, and I feel that those people are the people that have been left waiting for support for a long time and had to fend for themselves, go to see a naturopath, pay, you know, goodness knows how much money on tests that don't mean a thing and, um, you know, gone to Dr Google instead of reaching um, evidence-based medical support and an evidence-based support organisation that can help guide them in everyday life. Well, at this point, I think it's worth sort of giving you a bit of a free ad and a plug that people can go online and search for Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia, but they can also ring for information and advice by calling 1300 728 0 1300 but also that Allergy Pal is a free app um, and you can just go online onto the App Store and find Allergy Pal. Um, so there's a lots of support. Um, that is now developing for people and it's just fantastic to see in the last 30 years how much has changed and how a condition which was really unheard of before it's one of the few conditions I would say as a medical researcher was very exciting to work on because infectious diseases cancers Alzheimer's have been around since man has been known but allergy is a new kid on the block and food allergy in particular it's something to do with the modern lifestyle we could have a whole discussion about the causes of what people think are causing this modern epidemic of food allergy but we won't we won't go into that, but I will. That's say, another. That's another that's podcast. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I always like to um, finish by asking my guests, and thank you so much for joining us or joining me for this conversation, Maria. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, but I always like to finish by saying, what would you like for the future for this sector in the next hundred years? In the next hundred years, I'd I'd love us to be in a situation where we are actually talking about a cure and we're not giving people false hope, that we understand more about this allergy puzzle. Uh, We understand more now than we did 30 years ago, but it would be great to have treatments, to have better understanding, to have 
a variety of treatments and maybe one day a cure. Uh, here, here, so that completely agree with that. So it's fantastic that we have, uh, you know, Food Algae Awareness Week this week and uh, the, the work that you've done to lead um, this very important sector is, uh, you know, kudos to you, Maria. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Uh, it's been Thank wonderful. you. Thank you, Katie, and thank you for all you have done for allergy over your years, many, many years of uh, clinical work, research and advocacy. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully you'll learn as much as I do.